Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome back to The Napoleonicist. We're doing something that, frankly, I've been mulling over sorting out for really quite a while now. And I can't really account for why I haven't done this sooner, because it's a topic that's fascinated me for a heck of a long time. We're looking at the Chasseurs Britannique, a unit that has a pretty kind of meh, that is a technical term, a pretty meh reputation when it comes to particularly their desertion. But as we're going to discover today, there's a lot more to this emigre unit than just desertion. Joining me to unpick the more complex reality behind the headline is Alistair Nichols, who I think could very easily become the kind of resident forgotten foreign forces correspondent on this podcast. And you'll see why with this CV. He's written books on the Chasseurs Britannique, the Devotville Regiment and the Independent Companies of Foreigners. He's the co-author of For God and King, A History of the Damas Legion. He's the author of the forthcoming book, The Soldiers Are Dressed in Red on the Kebron Expedition of 1795, and he's working on the Dirol Regiment, which is quite a CV. It's really very impressive. Alistair, welcome to the Napoleonicist. How are you doing? Uh, good, thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Before we talk about the Chasseurs Britannique specifically, I'm keen to just sort of pause for a second and consider that impressive CV that I've just kind of outlined, <laughs> um, because you've done a wealth of work on what we might term those marginalised slash sidelined foreign units. You know, Dirol immediately springs to mind, um, not one that regularly hits the, the headlines. It certainly gets sort of sidelined in, in favour of more famous units. Um, the Chasseurs Britannique is another example, or was another example, until your book on it came out. So what sort of drew you to telling the stories of those units? Uh, oh, that's a that's a good question. And uh, you're going to be talking about something that um, my wife says I uh, find very embarrassing to talk about, namely me. Um, so, yeah. 
I, I suppose, and over obviously over time, I sort of thought about it on on a number of occasions. I suppose ultimately, my first point is that I'm, I do sort of question. I'm very inquisitive. I do tend to question things. So, for instance, uh, back in the '70s when I started sort of looking model making and uh, those sort of thing and looking at generally military history. Um, I look down an order of battle and see, say in the Peninsula War, see Chester Britannique. And my first question was, who were they? And why were they? And what were they doing there? Um, so that's where I sort of started from. Uh, and, you know, and perhaps even challenging, naturally, I, I think I question accepted wisdoms such as sort of Omen's uh, comments about um, the Chasse Britannique, which certainly in the 70s, it, where most of the books tend to be the uniform type books, lots of lovely plates and with a few commentaries, which uh, tended to reuse the same tropes, I suppose, for, for, for one of a better word, um, and Omen and those writers of the um, late 19th century, early uh, 20th century were the were tended to be the people that they went to. Um, again, I suppose again in the 70s, you've got to remember it was a very different age. Uh, uh, in schools uh, or the maps of the world tended to be still about a third of the world with coloured pink. Um, and we tended not to look at those marginalized or different people and different um, sections of society or, or in the history of the units um, in the same way that perhaps we do now for often very different reasons. Um, so, and also when I was making that, there was the wealth of information about the French army. Um, I wasn't particularly good at painting the models. I um, So I tended to want to go off and do different colored uniforms. So of course the foreign uh, units in the Napoleonic army were the perfect place for me to go. And then I you know, asked myself the question, well, surely if they were in the French army, weren't there any in the British army? And at that stage, really the only good source was uh, Gruvel's three volumes or, or the first volume of his three volume set. Um, which incidentally, uh, I don't know, it's a massive common knowledge, but actually the, the person who worked with him for the, on the British documents was uh, the CCP Lawson, uh, who wrote the book of, see about the uniforms of the British Army. Uh, but if you go back to uh, Gruvel's notes in uh, Chantilly, at the chateau there, uh, his archive, you can see all the notes and the, and the friendly correspondence between the two. Uh, which is quite a, a, an amusing, quite a nice side because they often did little sketches on the letters as well. So it's, uh, yeah, it's very interesting, very sort of nice link. Um, and then if you want to be deep and, deep and meaningful, I suppose if, and as an older man, you tend to sort of go around thinking, well, why have I spent this time looking so much at these sort of people? Well, perhaps I've felt or been over my life a, a little bit of an outsider, so perhaps I'm drawn to other outsiders. Maybe that's the, the deep and meaningful answer. Uh, but hopefully that uh, gives you a roundup of why. That's really interesting um, because, you know, I, I mean, I sort of jokingly say you might become the, the forgotten foreign forces correspondent, but for 
one individual to work so intensively on bringing these stories to life is, I've got to say, it's admirable um, because it needs somebody who understands regiments and is good at telling those stories. And folks, you're listening to this, there will be a, a proper plug at the end of this episode, but go buy this guy's books. They are really well written. And more importantly, they're really, really deeply researched. Um, but more on that at the end of the episode. But make sure you go look this guy up. Alistair Nichols is the one to read um, when it comes to forgotten foreign forces. We're going to hone in on the Chasseurs Britannique now. Um, and I want to start with the origin. I mean, it's kind of a logical place to start, really, isn't it? Start at the beginning, but start with the origins of the unit. Why was the decision taken to put together this unit? Um, kind of for emigres, because presumably it's not unprecedented in the British Army. American emigre units are, are a thing. We've talked about those on, on previous episodes. Other nations in Europe do a similar kind of thing at various points in the war. I'm thinking here of Clausewitz. He goes to serve in the Russian army um, after the disaster of Jena. So why do the British take this step? Well, I suppose there's a, there's a number of issues. Um, Obviously, there's there's the employment employment of emigres. Uh, there's a, a political aspect to it, in terms of, and you could look back in the French army of the uh, brigade Ilandais, the Irish brigade. The employment of uh, those was being a, an embarrassment, perhaps for the old enemy, uh, but also another way that perhaps you you keep a door open to. Um, undermining the regime in Britain, for instance, and also the other way around, of course, by the employment of um, uh, Huguenots by the by the British um, as well. So there's that history, that element to it, which is important uh, and possibly not recognised quite so much. Um, but also there is the use of uh, a pool of vampire that is there to be used. Um, and also particularly many of the units, it's actually, you have two if, two pools for manpower. You have the officer, Carter. So for instance, going back to the Irish Brigade in the French Army, it was essentially their regiments for most of the time and even more so as time went by. It was, they were foreign legion, uh, very few Irish actual soldiers in them, but the uh, officers were Irish either from birth or um, background. Um, and so you, you, you have that thing. And again, with the Swiss regiments throughout history, uh, less and less were actually Swiss soldiers. In general, uh, say a third were at least Swiss or two thirds, depending on wartime and peacetime. But it was actually the card that was the important thing. And so that that's that's the element of the um, of the formation of emigre units. Then, of course, with the dislocation uh, in France and many other countries as well, at the beginning of the Revolutionary War period, you had, again, more and more uh, available troops certainly for Britain, who had uh, a very, very small army, um, the use of uh, emigres allowed them to draw in more troops. 
and in particular officers who, who might know their business a bit better than some of the British. Uh, so there, there are those elements to it. As far as the Chateau Britannique in particular concerned, uh, in a way, the formation of that regiment came at the end of the revolutionary period. So there was less and less use, as it were, of these troops. But essentially it was at the end of the uh, War of the Second Coalition uh, when Austria, who was you know, the last main opponent for France in continental Europe, uh, had uh, made peace with the Peace of Luneville. Uh, there were a number of units that uh, had been paid by Britain uh, whether to act as auxiliaries with the Austrian army. And they were mainly uh, congregated in what is now Slovenia. The main two units of those were the uh, Swiss emigres who had opposed uh, the French uh, invasion in 1798 of Switzerland and the creation of a, a, a satellite republic by the French Republic. Uh, there were various units of those, but also there was the remains of what was called the Armée de Condé, which was originally the uh, army, one of the armies that had been raised for the French counter-revolution. Uh, now, the two, there were two elements in particular, if I concentrate on the Armée de Condé for a second, uh, or two. There were two main elements to this. There was the French, actual the French émigré units, uh, largely called uh, noble units um, of uh, French gentlemen, but also there were the professional soldier units, the so-called paid regiments, uh, which were did have some French soldiers, but most of them were had been recruited throughout Europe uh, as the as the Army de Condé had served with the Austrian army and then ultimately the Russian army uh, before coming back to being under British pay uh, and serving alongside the Austrians again. The so the main people they actually wanted that Britain wanted to serve, and, and the other nations did, by, certainly by that stage, were those paid soldiers. They weren't actually that keen to employ the uh, emigres other than as officers of those paid soldiers. Um, if I, there's quite a good quote that uh, I managed to get hold of, and it was by an emigre uh, officer who talked of, uh, who was a member of one of these corps of, uh, French gentlemen, and as he explains their situation, he said, we are an, as an assembly of French royalist officers. Imperceptibly, one wishes to make us ordinary soldiers. Under fire, we will be grenadiers, but never will we be soldiers for guard duty or interior discipline. We know to respect military discipline, but we will not suffer to be treated as soldiers. So, you know, this was... By, his, by someone of one of their own members explains the reason why most armies didn't actually want emigres anymore. They wanted uh, paid soldiers. Uh, it, go on. I was just going to say, is that kind of borne out in reality then? Do you see that, because you have this point that beggars can't be choosers, right? And if you're mm -hmm. putting a unit together, you have to work with the material that turns up. Um, when it comes to recruitment. So 
do you see these people sort of being largely um, trained men who, who join up? Um, because we've got this lingering thing about desertion and the question about devotion to um, a loyalist cause. So, so what's the kind of the ideological motivation then? Um, do, you, do you see people with limited service experience who are just incredibly keen signing up? Do you see people who um, have that, that experience but aren't particularly ideologically motivated joining or is it a fusion of the two? I'll probably go for the get out and say the fusion of the two, but certainly for the for the officers of the Chasseur Britannique, who was formed in May 1801, uh, it was it, so the War of First Coalition, going right back, say uh, 1792, 1793, depending on where, who which country you're looking at as starting, um, there was the wave of the emigration from France. So there was a lot of emigre soldiers and they were used in lots of different ways. And they were willing to serve in lots of different ways because uh, they could see themselves getting home very soon. But as time went by, uh, there tended to be a wider separation between the gentlemen who wanted to be officers and nothing else really, or and then the um, the soldiers who were then collected and recruited from all sorts of different sources, some deserters, some prisoners of war, um, some normal, normal inverted commas, recruiting otherwise, uh, to, to form these paid regiments in, in the Armée de Condé. And these, these were the regiments that, these were the soldiers that actually Britain and, and other European nations wanted. Uh, they, the, the, desire to actually have emigres, French emigres, other than as officers, uh, had, had disappeared, had gradually dissipated. Does that make, is that clearer? Yeah, that, that makes uh, complete sense. What? Uh, go on, sorry. No, I mean, no, the immediate on. need, the immediate need in May 1801 was that although uh, all the uh, protagonists in uh, continental Europe had gone, Britain was still committed to a campaign in Egypt. And when Abercrombie arrived and landed, they, the British found that the French forces in Egypt were much larger and in better shape than they'd been led to believe. So they needed soldiers as quickly as possible. And so the ones in Slovenia, um, who were now no longer useful, uh, could well could be made use of by forming these new regiments and and be sent to Egypt a lot quicker than uh, from Britain. Interesting. So it's kind of a case of necessity. You know, where is the the nearest source of viable manpower? Yes, exactly. And 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 soldiers who know their business as well. They're not they're not rural recruits by any means. So, uh, I mean, that leads us quite nicely onto sort of their, their record of service. You talk about um, Egypt as sort of uh, an, an early point in that process. Where do they serve and, and what do they ultimately end up doing? Because the, the famous one, inverted commas, famous, uh, tends to be the Peninsula War because that's where most people focus. But it's not just the Peninsula War where they're serving, is it? No, certainly. And the... 
essentially they served in the Mediterranean until eventually uh, going to the peninsula. And it's got to remember that from 1801 to what, 1808, 1809, that the center of British military action and effort for a large part was in the Mediterranean. Uh, and that, again, with that uh, concentration on the peninsula uh, is, is quite often lost, I think. So it was essentially, it was only the last five, six years of uh, a war that went on for 13 years that the peninsula was, was the center of activity. And, it, and that even that, that gradually moved from the Mediterranean to the um, peninsula, and you see that with some some of the senior officers being drawn uh, fr away from the Mediterranean towards uh, Spain and Portugal, uh, when they realise that that actually is, you know, what the government is concentrating on. Um, but going back to just sort of this like diversion, uh, going back to the Chesapeake, yes, um, eighteen oh one, they're in uh, go to Egypt. And they, they remain there. They're one of the last regiments to actually leave Egypt um, because we kept a, a Britain kept a force there during uh, the negotiations for the uh, Peace of Amiens. Uh, so they went in 1803. Uh, they came to Britain. They actually landed in England for a week or so. Um, one of the few foreign regiments that actually ever landed in England. Uh, before going to Jersey for a year or so. Then when the um, fighting started again uh, with what generally called the Napoleonic Wars, uh, they went, were sent to Malta. Subsequently from there, uh, in 1805, they served in Craig's um, Naples expedition. Uh, and then with that exped expedition, uh, landing the occupation of uh, Sicily. Uh, so during uh, the next couple of years, uh, they, although they didn't actually serve at the Battle of Maida, served in a number of uh, raids and other actions along the coast of um, southern Italy. In 1807, uh, they went back to Egypt in the campaign the disastrous campaign of 1807 in Egypt. Uh, and in particular, they served uh, in the first um, mission, as it were, uh, to Rosetta um, and ended up in a street fighting uh, when the British were, troops were driven from uh, Rosetta. Uh, then uh, from Egypt, went back to Sicily, uh, served there uh, with some detachments going to assist in the uh, some of the capture of uh, southern Ionian islands. Uh, and 1810 uh, went to Cadiz as part of the British force uh, during the siege of uh, Cadiz uh, before January 1811 going to Lisbon and joining the British army uh, from the um, uh, sort of breakout, as it were, from uh, the uh, lines of Torres Vedras. So, so it takes us takes us to Spain and Portugal. <laughs> it, it does, it does, and it there's a. I mean, I'm about to move on to um, deal with this sort of elephant in the room, as it were, of desertion, um, because we need to sort of get that out of the way and move on from that. 
Um, but there is a, a point just to make here that this is a, a long and fairly distinguished career. You know, these units would not have been sent to each of these locations if they weren't capable of holding their own and, and doing a decent job. So with that in mind, let's talk about the desertion issue within the context of the Chasseurs Britannique. I've certainly made no secret of the fact that my own research has shown this kind of huge disparity in desertion rates in the Chasseurs Britannique compared to other units. And we're talking vastly different um, rates, you know, six to, in, a, in a unit in, in a given month. Mm. Chasseurs Britannique can use some, lose something like 64 um, men to desertion and, and other units are losing literally a handful, you know, sort of one, mm. two, three, four, five. So why do you think the rates are so bad in your opinion? I've got a few theories on this, but I, I, you're the expert. I want to hear your take on it. Can, can I be a little bit mischievous? Mm, go for it. Uh, about this. I, on, you know, thinking, considering this, it, it almost becomes this desertion, almost becomes very much a British uh, preoccupation. And, and I just sort of wonder why, where's that come from? Uh, I, I think, I personally think there's two sources of that. Uh, one being uh, the, the way that the British Army kept its records is that every month there was a muster. Every member of a regiment was allocated to where they were. Uh, so there's that element or that part of that element, as it were. Secondly, um, only officers were absent without leave, not soldiers. Um, so when we look at the, say, the French army's records, if you look through the regiments, control of the regiments during the same period, the number of uh, soldiers who just sort of disappear, and essentially they do a bookkeeping exercise every now and again, they write off, Numerous soldiers saying not heard of, not seen, not lost. Um, yet, because of the way the records were kept, we've got them down as deserters in the British Army. There's, there's that element. Right? Um, and, and then again, I think it's the writing. It's the way the British have been looked at and written. Um, as part of the exercise, I had a quick look yesterday through... Um, quite recently uh, published book, Swiss Regiments in the Service of, of France, 1798 to 1815, by Stephen E. Borat. Mm -hmm. And throughout the text, despite there being quite sizable numbers of desertions from these regiments, throughout the main text, there's not a word, desert, desertion, deserter. The only times it gets mentioned is in the... Um, appendices on two occasions. Once when he re reproduces a, uh, a return from 1809 for one of the regiments. And the other mention is in uh, when he reproduces the uh, capitulation, I, the contract for the regiments, where there's a, an article that talks about replacing desertions. So my, my, my point being is, we always, as soon as we talk about foreign regiments in the British Army, we talk about desertion. And I've, I've, I have done that myself. So I, it's not sort of pointing fingers. Um, whereas, uh, you know, we don't, when we talk about the French Army, 
and the foreign regiments in the French army. I just will make that contrast. But going back to your question, <laughs> or do you want to come back on me? Uh, it's, it's a really interesting point that you make um, because there is definitely a distinction. I mean, the, the point that I've found within my own work is that when you look at the numbers, King's German Legion, um, the Brunswickers, the Chasseurs Britannique, their rates always seem to be higher. Um, and I've always found that incredibly curious. I do take your point that, yes, there is a fixation with desertion in the British Army. 100% agree with you on that. Um, apologies, folks. Crime and punishment anecdote incoming. And I've said this a few times now. What is it that the British Army punishes above everything else? It's desertion. About 40 to 50% of all trials are for desertion. So there's definitely this fixation. They have books of deserters. Um, there are all kinds of issues with numbers because some of the numbers that are circulated don't match others. So we um, have Kevin Lynch's estimates based on parliamentary um, returns to parliament that sort of look at a figure of something like 75,000 deserters over the period. Um, when you read the, the book of deserters and start tabulating it up for a slightly shorter period of time, but not vastly shorter period of time, you're looking at um, something in the region of 12 to 13,000. So there are all kinds of issues with numbering. Um, you also make a good point about officers. Officers are never classed as deserters. Officers are classed as AWOL. You do get men tried for being AWOL, absent without leave. Um, but you, you, that is a, a fair point that to what extent do you see um, people so rank and file being classed as absent without leave in the official returns. I'm not sure that you do. No. Um, so none of that is, is really sort of in, in response or riposte to, to what you're saying. I think it's a, a really interesting point. I hadn't really kind of considered the classifications within the French army. Um, yeah, it's an interesting point. But sorry, you, you carry on about, you know, the, the, the disparity, let's say, between um, in inverted commas, British units and units like Chasseurs Britannique, Brunswickers, um, KGL and so on. Yeah, I mean, there. yes, I'm, I'm, it is absolutely true, you know, the, the level of desertion in the, in the foreign regiments was higher than in the British Army, or the, the British native regiments, as it were. Um, and there was a disparity amongst those foreign regiments. And certainly the Chesapeake did have a higher level of desertion. Um, I would say there's a number of reasons for that. Oh, sorry, for the Chesapeake, but also for the foreign regiments. The sort of deal with the foreign regiment side of things, first off. I mean, the, if, if deserting is like crossing the Rubicon, the fact is that almost all those soldiers in those foreign regiments in the British Army and in the other armies of, of Europe um, had already crossed that Rubicon because they had deserted. Either very few of them had probably deserted directly from one army to another, uh, but they had deserted once they were prisoners of war. So that almost that sort of, uh, you know, uh, making that jump, that leap, that change of behavior, as it were, they, they'd already done that. Um, secondly, certainly the Chasse Britannique had more opportunities being in uh, Spain and Portugal, and they had um, officers, uh, sorry, 
people of their own nation and background on the other side, whereas most of the British didn't, were English, Welsh, Scottish, and Irish soldiers didn't, or had very, very few. Um, so in particular, in uh, the Chasse Britannique, when they first landed in uh, Spain and, and Portugal, that a large number of the soldiers were actually Spanish that had been uh, taken by uh, Navy ships uh, and brought to Malta and then been recruited into the Chasse Britannique. And they were actually deserting, it seems, and certainly Wellington saw that, they were actually deserting to the larger guerrilla forces to serve with those. So they weren't deserting to the enemy or even deserting from fighting. They were actually deserting to a, 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 a unit and a group of um, soldiers that they probably felt more comfortable with and wanted to serve with. Um, so, yeah, so, so and then there were obviously different phases. So one of the worst phase for what of a better word for the Chateau Britannique was in the um, 18th, back end of 1813, um, 1814, when they were fighting very close to France, but a lot of them had already served or coming towards the end of their seven years um, period of enlistment. And these were, let's face it, let's, you know, beat about the bush, these were mercenary soldiers. They were soldiers who had signed up with an employer on the basis that the employer sticks to their contract. And they were seeing themselves being kept at serving in the British Army after their seven years had, had come up. Uh, and at, at a time when they saw many other people serving, for instance, um, as muleteers or, or in the um, other sides of the British Army and being paid significantly better, better pay and, and conditions. And lastly, and I think there was, a, again, at this, in this period, there was a general feeling that the war was coming to an end. Uh, so what, what was going to happen to them, particularly as the British Army were keeping them employed or keeping them on duty, um, what are they going to do? Are they going to send, be sent to the West Indies? Or how are they, how are they going to be treated? They, they didn't necessarily know that. And one of the points I would sort of, I've seen not only from the Chasse Britannique, but also from reading a little bit about the French Army, that in these in the battles on the Pyrenees, the officers were exposing themselves more and more. They were literally having to lead from the front. They would draw or drive their men forward. Um, and there's accounts of you know French French soldiers having to do that. Sorry, French officers having to do that. And also the uh, casualty rate for the officers of the Chasse towards these latter latter uh, camp latter actions are very, very significant. And so their last battle they were at in uh, Battle of Orthez, you had uh, um, one captain killed and two died of their wounds. And that was out of a maximum of 11 uh, present at the time. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have to get 30, 30, to get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, bet you get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Um, there's a there's a lot for us to digest there, isn't there? Um, <laughs> Sorry, I'm no, 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 it's great. And this, is, this is exactly what we we do these episodes for to make people think. Um, the first thing I should say, um, mm-hmm. in in defence of the numbers to a to a degree, is um, just a sense of perspective. So, a British regiment at this point in time nominally is meant to be a thousand men. In reality. Wellington almost never gets a regiment of a thousand, uh, sorry, a battalion of a thousand men um, arriving with him in in Spain or Portugal. You know, the, the reality is probably somewhere between 450 to 750 is the strength of a battalion. The Chasseurs Britannique, when they arrive, 1600 men. So, you know, if you've got more people deserting from that unit in the first place, when you've got a, a bigger Units anyway, so the proportions aren't quite as skewed as the raw numbers initially suggest. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's a really interesting point that you raise about um, motivations, and particularly this kind of crossing the Rubicon thing. Uh, that's not an angle I'd kind of considered much before. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right that having done it once, and particularly perhaps not having an ideological motivation. Um, to what extent did any soldier have ideological motivation in this period is a, is a debate for another day. That's a whole podcast in itself. But yeah. um, as you say, having done that once, you've you've dealt with the psychological turmoil once before and sort of the second time becomes perhaps that little bit easier. Um, I also really like the point about not so much deserting to the enemy, but just deserting to a, a different unit in the case of the Spanish emigres, uh, so the Spanish um, soldiers that were recruited, because that is a significant point that sometimes people will have joined and then seen a, a better option as, as far yeah. as they could see. Um, you also make a massive, massive point when it comes to how badly the British treat their soldiers of all nationalities when it comes to rights of enlistment. And it's not just the Shattered Britannique who suffer uh, in terms of this seven year enlistment thing um we see it in multiple instances there's a big spike generally in desertion in the british army not Mm. just from foreign units but from inverted commas uh, native english scottish irish welsh units because the british government just summarily turns around and passes an act saying you enlisted for seven years but there's a war on we're not sending you home we'll send you will discharge you once the war's over, keep fighting, almost sort of kiss, kiss, love the British government. And 
people turn around and say, well, stuff this for a game of soldiers. I'm off. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because the, the British are pretty scandalous. And it's not just um, within the Peninsula War that that's the case. Actually, you've, we've got accounts, I think it's Cooper, um, is at the Battle of New Orleans and the night before. He's desperately trying to get discharged because his seven years are up. He doesn't want to fight the battle the next day. Um, and he's certainly got no interest in, in risking his life for uh, the cause any longer. Um, he's not ultimately able to secure that discharge, but it gives you that sense of actually this idea that you're just going to loyally serve this benevolent army that isn't paying you um, and isn't being particularly benevolent in terms of your rights of enlistment um, is, is a difficult one to square, you know? Um, it, it just doesn't work in reality. Yeah, the, like I say, there's a lot there to, to ponder on. Yeah. And, and you know, as I, I sort of always go back repeating, the thing is that these were mercenary soldiers. These were soldiers who, um, I mean, I, I, I put it this way, perhaps, you know, perhaps as a very young man, as uh, someone, a, a group of soldiers arrived in a village in Lithuania uh, from the Austrian army. Uh, that part of, had only just been taken over by Austria as part of the partition of uh, Poland. Then they'd been marched across down to Northern Italy, made to fight against French, captured by the, captured by the French. The French turn around and say, if you want to eat, you've got to put our uniform on. Um, and then one day they get captured by the British who go, well, here's pay and, uh, you know, obviously significantly better pay. Um, who can blame them for taking, you know, sort of taking a little bit of control over their lives by signing up for the British Army? And, and really, ultimately, are they any different from a, a weaver living in rural England whose livelihood has disappeared because of the onset of the Industrial Revolution. Actually, you know, is their motivation any less so? Because a lot of our um, understanding, of course, has come through, you know, the, the nation state building of the 20th century and, and uh, 19th century. So, you know, our ideas of patriotism and things like that are very different from the um, beginning of the uh, 19th century. Absolutely. I mean, there's a, an important kind of question that we're going to come on to about attitudes towards nation and kind of differences. But I mean, this is for folks who want to go and read more on that kind of that development of nationalism and patriotism and where it may or may not come from within the British context. Mm. Go read Linda Coley's um, book on, on forging uh, Britain and Britishness, because it's it's a messy, messy concept during this period. Mm. It's not... As you say, for us in the 21st century, looking back, we have these sort of clearly defined notions, but they are products of, as you say, the 19th and 20th centuries mm. um, and nation and empire building and all the rest of it and all the tropes that come with that. Um, I suppose we should move on from desertion, shouldn't we? Um, I'm sad to say that, but because it's a fascinating discussion. But as I said, you know, there's more to this story about the Chasseurs Britannique than just desertion. So let's talk about their wider service record and set, set the, the rest into the, provide the important context to that 
particular kind of avenue of debate? Yeah, I mean, I, I can certainly come back to it. There's a, a little vignette, as it were, of a, of a soldier who would appear to be ideologically set on fighting against the French. Um, so I can talk to him about uh, that a little bit later, if you if you prefer. Mm, go for it. Do it now. Um, okay. Um, yeah, this is uh, it's from the research of a, a Dutch a researcher called uh, Joost uh, Velten. I hope I pronounced that right. Um, and it's the story uh, of a man who was, well, he was baptised as Willemus Vossen. But to the British Army, he became uh, William or Willem Voss. Anyway, he was uh, born in 1779, and he was the seventh child in a family in a small farm in the village of Leverois, which is near Viet, which is now in the Netherlands. But at that time, it was in the Austrian uh, Netherlands. Uh, so invaded and annexed by Republican France. So in 1798, the French introduced a new law uh, for military conscription. Uh, and in that particular area, they revolted against it. Um, and it had to be suppressed by the French army. Uh, so essentially what they did, most of the uh, young men who were going to be drawn or dragged away for the French army, literally crossed the border into what was then Holland. And so uh, evaded the draft. Uh, and uh, this uh, young man, Vossen, was actually in the second draft of the year eight under the French uh, Republican calendar. Uh, and he did likewise, got across the border, which was literally walking across a field uh, and got there. So there, there were, obviously, the French took action against draft evaders, for instance, quartering soldiers in the, in the homes of the family, and various uh, other actions, but uh, this didn't really work for this man and many of the others. However, it did change when Napoleon installed uh, Louis on the, on the throne of the Kingdom of Holland in 1806. Uh, so Vossen was arrested, uh, and then he was sent to the um, depot for refractory conscripts in uh, Givet in northern France, which is a great big um, stronghold on, right on the border now. Uh, very famous for being particularly cold, apparently, even in the French army nowadays. Uh, but there they were kept under strict uh, surveillance uh, to do normal military training. And when he wasn't doing that, they had to work on the fortifications. And also as a further either punishment or way to distinguish them, they had their sh head shaved every week. But at some stage, he was obviously considered to be disciplined enough to be sent to a unit. And um, although we don't know the military unit, um, he was ended up in uh, either Spain or Portugal. Uh, perhaps um, perhaps in, in Portugal and uh, part immediately after the um, convention of Sintra, or perhaps uh, he was in one of the reserve legions that got caught up and uh, surrendered at Belen. But what we do know is that on um, the 25th of February, 1809, at the Foreign Depot at Lymington, uh, he enlisted into the British Army and was sent, as I say, as Willem Voss, to the Chasse Britannique. 
so it was a bit of a delay, but later on in the year, he went to Sicily, joined the regiment there, and then followed it right through till he was discharged in France on the 24th of June, 1814. Now, throughout that time, uh, it looks like he was a, a really good soldier. Um, the only times he was missing was once when he was sick, or the other times he was working as a staff servant. Um, so, and then after his discharge, he returned home. And like a lot of uh, people who couldn't, couldn't read or write in those days, they, uh, they, he lodged his uh, discharge document in the local uh, mayor's office. I have a little bit more about what happened after the war, but we, I think you want to deal with that at another stage, do you? Yeah, I mean, we'll come on to, you know, kind of legacies and, and their lives beyond the conflict. But yeah. it's, it's a really nice one to just kind of throw that in there and sort of show, look, some of these people, they, it's, it's not just desertion, all right? You know, it's not as though the entire unit runs away. Um, yeah. And you've kind of alluded to this already with the fact that, you know, as late as the Battle of Orthez, they are in the front line, literally. Um, yes. being led by their officers and sure there may be motivational issues we've kind of dis discussed why that might be but talk us through that battle record you know do we get moments when Wellington sort of turns around and throws begrudging compliments their way as is sometimes his inclination <laughs> well yeah I mean he does almost from the start it's got to be said I mean the first bat full sort of set piece battle they take part in is Fuentes de Noro uh, and the Chassepretty were part of the uh, 7th Division, um, which in itself didn't have the greatest of uh, recognition, although uh, later, certainly later on, they did seem to do the business, as it were. Uh, but Fuentes Donoro, the, the um, 7th Division was put out almost as a flank guard in the second day of the battle, um, and uh, got overexposed. Essentially, they, they were put right in the path of the main attack of the uh, French army at the time. Uh, and it was the stand of the Chasseau Britannique that managed to save the rest of, the, of that division at that stage. Uh, and indeed, uh, in his um, report dispatches off the battle, he drew credit to them forming a line, uh, the forming a line under their commander Eustace at the time um, behind a wall and uh, driving off the French cavalry. Uh, so, you know, re right from the start they, they did, uh, served well. Uh, then they were later sent to the second siege of um, Badafos, where they uh, were sent against um, the fort of uh, San Cristobal. Uh, now there, there's all the indication that they served perfectly well. However, a subsequent account, a second-hand account, it's got to be said, um, by uh, Grattan, uh, has started to sort of blacken the Chesapeake's name. Um, but uh, then uh, for, other than a lot of marching, uh, that was the end of sort of 1811. Uh, 1812, was really a matter of, they, so they um, covered the siege of uh, Cuida Rodrigo, then marched south and, and did the similar sort of mission under Graham 
uh, at Badajoz. Then in June 1812, they were back again. They took part in the Salamanca campaign. And indeed, uh, there was the heights of um, San Cristobal uh, outside uh, Salamanca. Uh, they put in a, a pretty decent performance, and that was right at the beginning of the Salamanca episode or campaign. Um, later on, they went uh, to Madrid as part of the 7th Division and took the Retiro, which is the stronghold in the city that the French maintained there. Then subsequently went uh, up to Burgos and was part of the covering forces for the siege of Burgos. Um, and I've got to draw attention to a, an episode on the 20th of October. So immediately before Wellington decided to uh, withdraw from Burgos as part of the um, covering forces, the Chassepretti was uh, posted to the village of Olmos and faced the oncoming uh, French divisions, in particular the uh, division of Mocha. And what happened there was they, it's reading between the lines, they weren't expected to hold out against the division uh, so well. And essentially the Chassepretti held the village and the French started pouring more and more troops into the attack. Uh, and it suddenly realized that this was an opportunity to make to, to deal uh, a severe blow against the French forces. Uh, but at the last moment, uh, Mocan, uh, I think it was Delon, who was the French commander, realized that they were about to be encircled by Wellington, who'd drawn troops from Burgos to actually make that attack. Uh, so they, they managed to get away in time. But uh, I think it's, you know, they actually held out. It was the action of the Chasse that drew in more and more of the French troops. However, the following day, Wellington calls off the uh, siege anyway. And uh, certainly as far as he was concerned, probably uh, the less said, the better. Um, so that may be a reason why that episode's not actually recognized so much. Um, 1813, the 7th Division and, and the Chasse-Britannique um, took part in the crossing of the Esla, and they were directly part of the uh, brigade that crossed and almost sort of set the bridgehead up for the rest of the British forces. Uh, they were part of the, the brigade of the 7th Division that uh, fought at Vittoria um, and, and again performed well. Uh, they then went up, uh, continued up onto foot towards Pamplona and then onto the Baztan Valley uh, in the Pyrenees. Uh, when the British were driven from the Pyrenees and ultimately back to the defensive position at Sororan, covering Pamplona, um, and what became the first and second sort of battles of the Pyrenees, uh, what happened was the 7th Division, uh, in withdrawing, outmarched the uh, 2nd Division, which had, had actually had more significant service uh, right in the battles or the fights, uh, Maya, Ronceval, etc. But they actually outmarched the 2nd Division and so was placed on Wellington's uh, left wing. Uh, and took, having taken the place that had been originally intended for the 2nd uh, Division. Uh, 
Uh, it's also got to be said that this is sort of a period when other divisions um, didn't really sort of make much of an appearance. Um, and I'm thinking of the light division on, on that case. Uh, again, immediately after the battle, they performed well at uh, Donna Maria Passes, where they were at the at tail of the retreating French army, slightly by, by chance rather than plan, but that's what happened. And also fought in the Saint Martial uh, Heights uh, on the 30th of August, an action which um, not many British forces were took part in at all. Uh, and then afterwards, sort of the Battle of Nivelle, uh, and then in 1814, took part in the advance and fought at the Battle of Orthez, when again they were part of the uh, brigade that actually made the breakthrough on the French right wing at uh, Saint-Boez. Uh, but after that, that was their last main um, engagement because they took part in the uh, Beresford's uh, uh, forces that went to Bordeaux uh, and they took part in some small actions uh, in quite sort of um, quite an exposed situation where they were surrounded by much much larger but local forces uh, in that area, uh, and that leads us to um, uh, the sort of Giron estuary where the majority were uh, disbanded. Which I mean, you you just you've you've taken us nicely onto where I was going to go with this next, but I just want to sort of say at this point that. You know, at no point are they just sort of sent to the rear and, you know, take on administrative duties and fetch and carry and all the rest of it. You know, they, for all that we do emphasise this desertion thing within the, a lot of the existing historiography, actually, no, there is, Wellington doesn't sort of give up on them. The, the issue isn't so substantial that he goes, well, this unit is useless to me. And I think that's a point that perhaps has been drowned out by a lot of the focus on desertion. But yeah, so this unit gets disbanded, um, does it, at the end of the Peninsula War? Yes, certainly. I mean, it's all going, quickly going back on your point, yeah, I mean, that that's exactly, you've, you've made the point for me, really, is that if, if this regiment was quite so bad, why why did uh, why did Wellington keep, keep it? He could have easily sent it back to another garrison in, in the theatre or, or even sent it as, sent it back to, wherever it came from, uh, as, as he did with some of the British regiments or battalions at various times. Um, and and the, the, I think, the, if I quickly answer that point, I think the real reason is they were a large unit and they had um, a good track record, other than the desertion, of keeping soldiers in the ranks. Uh, their sickness rate was lower than the British uh, units. Uh, and also, there's quite anecdotal evidence to show that uh, they were better in the field. These soldiers could look after themselves better. Um, yeah, there was a, a British officer, Major Rice, who had his horse killed when they were in a square, I think at Salamanca or whatever. So a couple of the Chasseurs started butchering this, the horse for meat there and then. Uh, also in the advance to Vittoria, when the soldiers sort of outmarched the commissariat. Um, Chastel-Britannique was famous for a sort of um, boiling up hide from slaughtered animals to uh, 
and selling it in order to stave off um, hunger among the British soldiers. So these were these were adaptable, for want of a better expression, you know, hard men who knew how to how to live off the ground, off the land, which um, a lot of the British soldiers didn't necessarily. Interesting, yeah, hardy individuals certainly from, yeah. from the sounds of it, and yeah, I, I mean, you you make a really good point. <laughs> Wellington was never backwards in coming forwards when it came to him being dissatisfied with units. So the fact that they stay is in itself something that's important to, to throw into mm-hmm. this argument. Um, what do we know about the lives of these men beyond um, their service in the conflict? Are we able to trace any of their journeys beyond the army? Uh, very little. I mean, obviously there is a lot more available about the officers. Um, individual soldiers, like like the vast majority of all nations, they tended to sort of disappear into the background again. Um, the I, I do know a little bit about what happened to Willem Voss. Um, he, well, as I say, went back to, uh, then subsequently moved towards a um, sort of village in the suburbs of Brussels. Um, and he married in 1818, uh, Marie Elizabeth, who was a, um, a servant, and he became a butcher. And he lived and they lived in around, they had a family, again, near um, Brussels, and their first child was born in 1821. But other than that, um, about him, I don't know anymore. Um, other soldiers... No, I think some, I mean, some drifted home from uh, near Bordeaux when they were disbanded. Others were sent back to Britain uh, and went to the foreign depot, which was then moved to Harwich because of where's the the different uh, emphasis, as it were, for the British Army was moved from the south coast to the east coast. Um, And so some went back. So I would think that some well had found jobs in the new um, army of the Kingdom of Holland or some other forces. Uh, we do know that three of the bandsmen, because you know, bandsmen were always sought after by different regiments, uh, joined the 40th foot, the second Somersetshire. Uh, and th- those three at least served at Waterloo. Uh, and subsubsequently uh, made a, a little bit of a name for themselves, actually, uh, because the 40th foot subsequently served in Australia. And uh, certainly, so Joseph Reichenberg, who was one of these, was a sergeant uh, in the 40th. Uh, he, he left the army in 1829 and has some standing in the early sort of history of music in Australia as a... a as a teacher and a composer. Uh, Another one uh, was Louis Vogel, Vogel, and he uh, went on to, in Britain, to be a member of various people's house bands. And and he was followed by his son, who was also a bandsman, uh, but also uh, his uh, daughter, Caroline, uh, some famous, the the Sicilian dwarf who was um, 
used in sort of uh, theatres and um, sidelines and of various circuses in Britain. A bit of a sad story, actually, is what we said. Mm. And finally, the Louis Guerin uh, served in the 40th until 1836, again, as a sergeant and bandmaster. Uh, those are the only things I can tell you about these soldiers. The, the officers, by and large, uh, who were almost all French, uh, went back to France uh, and retired. Uh, what happened was they, uh, when they returned to France, there was a, a commission of émigrés and it determined their rank in the French army, depending on um, what they'd been at the beginning of the wars, of, of either in the French army in 1789 or, or within the um, emigre units in 1793. Um, so a lieutenant could look and say, well, we could be, could have been a lieutenant colonel. And they would then be paid, given that rank in the French army, but put immediately onto retirement. Um, because by the end of the, by 1814, most of these, most of the officers who'd uh, come as emigres were, and I say as someone in the early 60s, are uh, getting on a little bit because, uh, say, it was about 24 years before since they emigrated. So in 1814, uh, the captains uh, in the Chateau Pratique, most of them were in their mid-40s. Well, the average was 43 of the ones who were active in the Chasse Britannique. Uh, the major who commanded them, Alexis uh, du Autois, uh, he was 48. So by the time they got back to France, they could, didn't really have another military career or other careers to pursue. I mean, there are a couple of um, exceptions. Some of the younger officers did join the French army largely as uh, like permanent staff in garrisons, uh, but nothing much else than that. Uh, one of the officers, Rodolf de Muralt, who was um, a Swiss, he actually joined the um, Dutch army uh, in one of the Swiss regiments that was formed from 1814-15 uh, and subsequently became a major general and a provincial governor. But most, most of them disappeared into retirement, most of the officers. I mean, it's, it's one of those things, isn't it, that we have these men's stories, they take part in pretty major events in, in European and, and, to an extent, world history, and then just they, they disappear into the ether um, mm. because ultimately then they just go back to civilian lives and... The army doesn't track them anymore. Um, certainly in many cases, the army won't have paid for their uh, journeys home, I wouldn't have thought, because the, the army does tend to be very tight-fisted when it comes to getting people uh, back to where they came from in, in 1814. Um, oh, yeah, they were, they, yes, they were given some pay. I think they were given, I think, a month's pay for getting back home. Oh, were they? Oh, that surprises me, because the yeah. story that I always come back to is the one about unofficial battalion wives, the women who um, had followed the regiment because of um, 
you know, they, they form connections with soldiers within the, the unit and they're not formally on the strength. And at the end of the period, the army just goes, yep, thanks very much. We're <laughs> going to leave you here. Uh, and th- we're talking about desertion. This is the moment when the army has a real desertion problem and the yes. numbers just skyrocket because everyone goes, um, no, <laughs> not yeah. doing that. And partly it's this thing that we were talking about earlier, you know, end of period of enlistment. Um, and people would rather stay local rather than be shipped off back home. But also I think a big chunk of it is the fact that the the army just goes, yeah, we don't really care if you developed a romantic connection with this person and had a child with them. Um, we're going to leave them in France and take you somewhere else in the world. And people go, mm, no, I don't think so. Um, let me round up then with a, a tough one, which we have sort of alluded to all the way through this. The Chasseurs Britannique, I think we can kind of agree, they don't deserve their reputation, do they? So how would you encourage people to think about the unit? Uh, I, yeah, so, <laughs> that's a tough one, really. Because, um, I mean, first I would say, again, throw it back at sort of what reputation has have they got? Uh, if we're going back to Charles Oman's one or Fortescue or, or someone like that, um, I'd say, well, actually look at the evidence uh, because Oman, for instance, described them as uh, a body of officers of purist French royalists who kept these people in check, yes? They kept the miscellaneous horde committed to their charge under an iron discipline and used the lash freely. Well, actually, there's no evidence at all that they used the lash, let alone freely or otherwise. Um, they, the regiment, did its job, probably did its job as good or, or, or as well or even better than some of the British units um, at times. But I'd, I'd say is look at the evidence. Well, like As we've already discussed, Wellington didn't send them back. He sent other units back. Um, I'd, so I'd look warts and all. You know, don't over give the give the unit a halo, for instance, for the sake of it, just to to redress uh, things that were written in the past, perhaps about it. They were a, a group of men through different circumstances or the situation that they found themselves in, um, who tried to make the best of life and best of the situation they had. That. That's the way I would try to, or I would ask people to look at it and remember to be look, look through the prism of, uh, of the age that they were in. And uh, just one thing to, to follow yeah. up on that. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, just, I've literally just pulled up my crime and punishment database. Bearing in mind, as I've bored people many times, I've got 9,227 cases in this database. Um, 26 of them relate to the Chasseurs Britannique, which is a minuscule proportion. Um, and <laughs> so there's a certain irony in this. It's not about desertion, but all by one of those trials uh, is for desertion. Um, they're punished pretty harshly. I've got to say the proportion of people being shot here um, mm. is very high. So they, they were treated harshly when they were tried um, for desertion. 
but it seems to mainly focus around 1811, um, looking at the, the numbers. Right. Where most of these, so clearly a, a statement is being sent to the yes. unit that, you know, there's been a spate of desertions. We're yeah. going to deal with this. We're going to deal with it harshly. Um, and then it, it peters out. Uh, but one individual uh, tried for stealing a mule. Um, a couple as, of as mules, actually. He stole a couple of mules, I think. Are we talking about the same guy? Uh, uh, probably the sergeant. Was he a sergeant or something? And uh, he stole Corporal one Francis person's she Oda. mule. And some... <laughs> Corporal Francis Oda tried at Moimento in uh, April of 1813. In fact, it's, oh. it's almost the anniversary of that trial uh, in a few days' time. 28th yeah. of April. So there you go. Uh, he got yeah. 500 lashes for it. So read into that what you will. Uh, that's not particularly... <laughs> I flogging actually it has to be yes said, yeah so. I mean um, yeah I mean uh, but also I, I did notice this, uh, one of the last trials for desertion and it was desertion to the enemy and uh, for a, a soldier in the Shaftesbury Snake it was 1814 um, and all the officers on the um, for the trial were British officers and he basically gave an admonishment because everyone realised that it was the end of the war. What are we doing this? You know, it's, so it is quite interesting how how they're treated differently in the circumstances as well. That is interesting, isn't it? It's a lovely point at which uh, to end. Alistair, it's been so good talking to you. Um, Thank you. But I'm not going to let you go without giving you the opportunity to properly plug your books, um, whether they be on the Chasseurs Britannique, the, I think I mispronounced this, but is it the Watville Regiment? Or Watville, yes. Um, and, and also the, the history of the Damas Legion. So tell people titles um, and, and yeah, go nuts with the, the pitch. Uh, right, well, if I start, I mean, obviously the older one about the Chasseurs Britannique, which was my sort of first effort for writing a book rather than articles and that drew me to the um Watville Regiment which 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 was uh, created at the same time as the Chasse-Britannique which is one of the main reasons why I started started taking the interest but I would I really recommend the Wellington Switzers uh, the Watville Regiment in Egypt the Mediterranean Spain and Canada as a book about a regiment and a, a regimental commander because uh, to, I used the journal of the Lieutenant Colonel Frederick uh, de Watville, not Frederick de Watville, sorry, Louis de Watville, um, throughout for, for that book. And it gives a fascinating, real deep, I think, real deep understanding of a regiment and a regimental commander uh, right throughout the period right through into Canada uh, and dealing with officers, officers' wives, soldiers. Um, really very, very interesting. I, I think a really in-depth in study. Um, a fascinating man, I've got to say. I mean, they, he, he and his wife in Sicily, for instance, even looked after Bunbury, uh, the, the writer, um, and who became military secretary to the Duke of York subsequently, uh, looked after their children while uh, Bunbury's wife was going through a, probably a period of uh, mental illness. 
Um, but really, yeah, I, I'd really sort of, yeah, I, I, I think I'd recommend that myself. <laughs> um, and then a, a study of uh, which self-published, uh, they turned out so ill at the Indo independent companies of foreigners. Um, a real issue about desertion because they were proper deserters from the French army uh, who then went up to, uh, ended up serving in uh, the United States or against the United States. Uh, very, very bad reputation. A lot of it deserved, some, some not so. Um, but what was so interesting about these uh, men that uh, the Americans so loathed, uh, how quickly the Americans uh, enrolled them into the American army and what happened to them after that. Uh, so, yeah, if you want to real follow that up. Um, the Golden King, Damas Legion. Uh, it's a study that I did with uh, Ugh de Bazouge, um, whose ancestor was in the Legion, was an officer in the Legion. And it basically follows right from during the emigration, uh, the fights for the counter-revolution, uh, the retreat of the British army from Netherlands, uh, when the Damas Legion um, moved from the service of the, the Dutch, the United Provinces, to the British, uh, service at Kibron for the infantry, and then throughout the service with the Austrian army, and then subsequently the Russian army. Uh, so, yeah, really follows through the the story of the military uh, emigration uh, hopefully gives a really good insight of that period and what happened to those soldiers. Uh, and those, that is my writing so far, other than some articles and bits and pieces, including for you, Zach. Yes, indeed. <laughs> On occasion. Yeah. Uh, the Sword and the Spirit. And funnily enough, it, it was that which made me think, look, I really need to get this guy onto the, the episode, onto the, the Napoleonicist to, to talk about this properly, because uh, the article is entitled, It's Not Just About Desertion. Um, so folks, go find uh, The Sword and the Spirit on Hellion website, and um, I'll thank you kindly for your custom. But you have a book forthcoming from Hellion, don't you? The Soldiers Are Dressed in Red, which I've had a little bit of a look at the early manuscript for it's all about the Kebron expedition which looks yes. incredibly interesting so please do come back for that and folks you can go register your interest for that on the Hellion website right now um, literally google Hellion and uh, Alistair Nichols and it will come up as a link um, because it's going to be published very soon Alistair please come back again because oh. we've got so much more to talk about but thank mm -hmm. you so much for your time today it's been fantastic no problem. No, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Before you go, folks, all the usual things. Remember to like and subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, and you can find me on Twitter at ZWhiteHistory. A huge thank you as ever to my Patreon supporters. It is their support that keeps this podcast going. If you're interested in contributing to the show, you can find out more from the link in the description. Prices start from £1 a month, and you get all kinds of perks from discount codes on... Um, pen and sword books which means you actually quite rapidly end up regaining some of the money that you invest in the show all the way through to voting rights shout outs in episodes and even one-to-one -one meetings with me 
If a regular subscription isn't your thing, which believe me I completely understand, you can leave one-off tips via Ko-fi. Again, the link is in the description. And all the money gets reinvested into producing more content further down the line. And I have a big project in mind involving footage from battlefields that could potentially be uh, a really engaging, exciting project if I can bring the money together to make it happen. A big thank you as ever to my Emperor level patrons, Mark Stoos, JC Kaiser and Todd and Led Campbell, my Marshall patrons, Matt Bone and Marcus Cribb, my Commander patrons, John Haynes, Gur Brown, Liam Telfer, Jane Davis, Bob Burnham, Andy Meakin and Michael Guest, my Mentioned in Dispatches Plus patron, Noah Fink, and my Mentioned in Dispatches patrons, Miles Reedy, Alexandra Leon, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Beatrice de Graaf, Brendan Teeling, Colin Fieldhouse, Ed Koss, Bruins Girl, Gareth Copeland, Jeff Maple, Hugh Brennan, Indiana Fats, James Bevan, Jim Deary, Jim Getz, Josh Keeney, Lucy Tapner, Lynn Dawson, Mark Dewhurst, Mark Anscombe, Rob Griffith, Roy Muir, Ross Flowers, Ryan Diamond, Rob Cothlin, Mark Trowbridge and Stephen Coulson. This has been The Napoleonicist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe. And as always, thank you for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.